Now, our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 12. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. Romans chapter 12, as we continue on through our study of the book of Romans. And we've come to the last section of the 12th chapter, which will be verses 17 to 21. Now, we are in a portion of the book of Romans that has come after the development of some serious doctrine In chapters 1 to 11, Paul has clearly laid out the rich, deep doctrines of the gospel of the grace of God. And then, as he came to chapter 12, he said, Therefore, since you've experienced these doctrines, you've been justified in Christ, here are some ways to apply the doctrines. And he began by saying, you first need to apply that doctrine to yourself. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He stresses the development of the mind in this chapter. And then, as we saw last week, he moved from things pertaining to self to things pertaining to others who are in the family of God. We are to be, again, verse 16, of the same mind of those who are in the family of God. So he goes from developing self to your relationship with others. And now he takes up this new theme as how we relate to the unbelieving world, and especially in the context of things in the unbelieving world that don't seem to be right. So he says, starting at verse 17, never, and that's a strong, by the way, negation, very, very strong in the original language, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so that's a conditional element there, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a powerful series of verses. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of them and the exposition later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you truly are. We see that in your creation, that beautiful moon, that sun that shines, displays your genius, your omniscience your power, your omnipotence, your immutability, that light and darkness comes every 12 hours. We see that that doesn't change. The fact that you control the time of the day certainly displays your eternality and infinity. And the provisions that you give to us displays that you care for us, your imminence, how close you are to us. Lord, the salvation that you've given to us displays your sovereignty it displays your grace it displays your mercy and love what an amazing god you truly are and we want to thank you lord for being our god and thank you for working in our minds and hearts and we see in this text of scripture in fact we've been seeing that all throughout this 12th chapter that you want us to manifest your sovereign grace in the multi-dimensions of life We're to manifest your grace in ourselves and our own development by not conforming to the world, but being transformed by renewing our minds and the scriptures. We're to manifest your grace to others in the family of God by having legitimate, true, honest, good body ministries and attitudes toward one another. And then we're to manifest your grace to the unbelieving world by our reactions and situations. And Lord, we don't do this naturally. We need your help. We need your grace 
to become the kind of person that you would have us become. So we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would use your word to develop us more and more into the people that you want us to be. We pray that as we develop, you will continue to guide us and direct us and bless us. We pray your blessings will be on us as individuals and on the church. Make us a strong family unit here who loves you, who loves your word and loves each other in a right way. Lord, we pray for our country. What a privilege we have of living here in this United States. We pray for our state of Michigan and for our community of Kalamazoo and the surrounding area. We pray for the leaders who are governing in these matters. We pray that you would help them make decisions that will please thee and help your people. Lord, you're God. You've revealed yourself that you can turn minds the way you want, so we pray you do that. We pray that you would take charge of their minds, overrule emotions, help them to think rationally and logically about what's best according to your will, according to the group that will please you and your people. And may they realize, Lord, may we all realize in light of this text today, there's a day of reckoning coming. We pray that those who have needs will have those needs met today. We pray that you would keep us as a church, a sensitive group of people to those that are hurting and those who are rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 2021 in New Orleans, an 18-year-old young man named Caleb Johnson and his 25-year-old stepsister, Brianna, were gunned down by Hollis Carter, a 21-year-old man. He was caught, and he confessed to the murder of both of them. His attorneys tried to get him off by saying it was a false confession. Five months after his arrest, he posted bail, and he got out of jail. Caleb's father and Brianna's stepfather, Bokeo Johnson, decided to take justice into his own hands, He felt like the killer was going to get away through the slick tactics of defense attorneys, so he tracked him down, and he shot him in the head, and he killed him. Now he's in jail, awaiting his own trial for second-degree murder. So far in the United States in 2023, there have been 470 mass shootings. In those mass shootings, 492 people have been killed. 1,708 people have been wounded. Many of the shooters are dead. They either committed suicide or someone shot them. A few of them have survived, and they're awaiting their trials. What should be the attitude of the relatives of those who've been gunned down? How do you expect them to feel? How should they respond? Should they seek to take justice into their own hands? Should they leave it to the courts? Paul said, no. We have another way as believers we can handle stuff like this, and that is we can leave it to God. We're in a practical part of the book of Romans. Paul has been developing the grace gospel and how to practically apply it and display it as believers in Jesus Christ. And what he says here is we are to demonstrate the grace of God in our lives when we refuse to take evil revenge on our enemies, but we leave the revenge to God. Now, I want to be very clear on this point. Just revenge is something God is going to repay. Understand that about God. Just revenge is something he is going to repay. Any sin against God is eternal. And no matter how much time goes by, that doesn't eliminate the guilt. No matter what the delay is in the judgment 
that doesn't eliminate the guilt. That's why there's eternal hell fire, because guilt just doesn't go away. And God is going to have a just vengeance that we pour out on all those that are guilty. We also will conclude, certainly next week, it's the responsibility of government to punish those who do evil. He has turned that responsibility over to the government. So when God says, never pay back evil for evil, he's not saying that we should let killers and rapists and drug dealers walk free. He's not saying that we should not show up at court and tell the jury and judge just to let them go so that we aren't accused of paying back evil for evil. What does God mean here? I mean, does God mean if someone breaks into your house with the intention of doing harm to you and your family, or someone goes into a store and pulls out a gun and starts shooting, that we don't do anything to stop it? What if a child is grabbed on the side of the streets and starts screaming for help? Are we supposed to just stand there and say, oh, that's too bad? We're not supposed to be people who take revenge? What about those passages of Scripture where God says we're to protect ourselves and protect other people? What about the passages of Scripture where God told his own disciples, buy a sword because I'll no longer be here to protect you. You need to protect yourself and defend yourself. So what is he saying here in this text? What is the grace mindset? In fact, this grace mindset must be implemented in the context of what is right in the sight of all men. You'll notice that. It says in verse 17, respect what is right in the sight of all men when it's possible. So you're downtown, and some car pulls up and starts grabbing a child. The majority of people would say the right thing for you to do is step in and stop it. That would be the right thing for you to do. And that's how God wants his people thinking in these contexts. Now, the context of this is that Paul's discussing how the theology of the grace gospel should be lived out in our lives and in the world in which we live. What he presents here is revolutionary. He presents what we could call here a non-revenge, non-retaliation evangelism. In other words, there's a way we witness the grace of God to the world, and that would be when we don't go on some vengeful vendetta when we would have the right to do. That's the natural thing that we want to do. The natural thing we want to do is go on some eye-for-eye vengeance vendetta. Now, last night we were watching the ball game. This is just my old nature. This is my natural tendency. We're watching a ball game. And Mary brings out this can of nuts that she'd hidden from me. <laughs> because she knows I'll eat that whole can of nuts. So she brought it out and they go, where have those been? She goes, oh, they've been around. Yeah, she hit them. My first inclination is I'm going to hide your iPad. <laughs> Eye for eye vengeance. That's not where we want to go with this. There are six revenge actions that display the grace of God here. And if it's possible, we should try to display the grace of God in the actions. Number one, refuse to take revenge. Notice verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Never. But notice what it says. Evil for evil payback. That's what the text says. Evil for evil payback. That's exactly what the grammar says. Now, if we're living our lives according to the word of God, and we are trying to not be conformed to this world, and we're trying to be transformed by the renewing of our minds on the scriptures, there will be times when you will find yourself in warfare conflict. 
In fact, I go so far as to say this. If you really grasp grace and you stand for grace and you defend grace, you'll find yourself at war with religion. And religious people that are all hung up on legalistic stuff, you'll find yourself at war on them. We will have times when we'll have some enemies. And even if we don't want to have them, we'll have them. The assumption here is along life's trail, every now and then we bump into one of these evil enemies who are against us. There will be times when people are going to wrong us as believers. There will be times when we won't be treated right. You may discover in your life there are times when you will be abused emotionally, mentally, physically, even spiritually. And that abuse can come from a wide variety of people. It can come from a family member, verbal abuse, hateful abuse. It can come from a mate it can come from someone we know, someone we don't know. I mean, people steal, people lie, people cheat. They invent things that aren't true. What do we do about that? When that hits us, how do we react to that? Well, one way we reflect the grace of God is we don't seek payback in an eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth vengeance way, which is what the Old Testament law demanded. But you see, we're not under the Old Testament law anymore. We're living by a whole new dimension, a whole new code. We're living under the grace of God. We're no longer operating by the legal codes of the law. God says you can demonstrate your grace by not paying back evil for evil vengeance. The wrong response is to pay back the wrong with another equivalent wrong. Years ago, we had a guy in our church. His daughter was raped and left for dead. And he had to go to court. He asked if I'd go with him to court, and I did with his family. We went to court together. We're sitting outside waiting for the doors to open to go in for this court case, and he said to me very calmly, Pastor, I have a shotgun out in my car. If that judge walks and lets this guy walk, and he walks down those stairs, I'm going to kill him for what he did to my daughter. I said to him, you don't want to do that. You're not going to want to do that. You're going to get yourself in serious trouble. You'll be in the same predicament that this man from New Orleans is in if you do that. Well, fortunately, fortunately, the judge threw the book at him. The guy will never see the light of day again outside of prison. But the fact of the matter is there's a sense in which we have a surge that wants to make it right. And Paul says, look, When you find yourself in those situations and that surge is taking place emotionally, you need to think things through. Don't just return evil for evil. So if someone bashes into your car, you don't get into your car, start bashing into their car. If someone yells a bunch of curse words at you, you don't just decide, I'm going to yell a bunch of curse words back at them. If someone starts lying against you, you don't say, well, now to get even, I'm going to make up a bunch of lies about them. If someone gets drunk and flips a finger at you, you don't say, I'm going to get drunk and flip a finger back at them. And if someone hurts one of your members in your family, you don't say, well, I'm going to hurt one of the members of your family. In other words, don't pay back evil for evil. Your mate verbally lashes out at you, says something that gets under your skin. Don't pay back evil for evil. A guy that I really appreciate in ministry is quite an amazing testimony. He's a man by the name of Ray Stedman. He was an interesting guy. He's long been with the Lord. But he studied under Dr. Chafer 
at Dallas Seminary back in the 40s, 1940s. He was abandoned by his father as a young boy. He became quite a Montana cowboy. I mean, he lived in Montana, and he actually joined the rodeo circuit, and he was a bull rider in the rodeo. And then he came to faith in the Lord, and he was dedicated to a tremendous, tremendous student of the Scriptures and was a great Bible teacher in a church in California. He told the story of in the Korean War, some American officers had rented a house, and they hired a Korean boy to work for them, They paid him well, and he was a good kid. He was a happy, cheerful boy, and the officers loved playing tricks on him. They did it as a joke. For example, they would take his shoe, and they'd nail it to the floor. So he'd go to pick up his shoe, his shoe's nailed to the floor. They would now and then put water above the door. And he always laughed, this boy did. He always had a good sense of humor. And one day, they called him in and said, Look, we want to apologize to you. We want to apologize for the jokes that we've played on you. We're sorry for that. In fact, we're never going to do it again. So the young Korean boy said, well, so you're not going to nail my shoes to the floor anymore? No, we're not. So you're not going to put water over the door so when I come in it pours on my head anymore? No, we're not. He said, okay. From now on, I won't spit in your soup. (laughs) Payback evil for evil. What God says is don't be doing that. Don't pay back evil for evil. Which brings us to the second grace action, respect what's right. That's what he says in verse 17, respect what's right in the sight of all men. We demonstrate God's grace when we respect what's right in the sight of all men. There are a couple things to point out here. First of all, if it's possible, we'll stress that in just a minute. But the word respect means you're thinking about this. In other words, we're back to the development of the mind, not the surge of emotions. In other words, grace is basically governed by a careful thinking, a transformation that takes place on the word of God. And what Paul is saying here is before you take action, you give careful thought to it. And you respect what's right, what's good, what's excellent, what's honorable. You think through what's the right thing to do here. And he said, do that in the context of all kinds of men, in the sight of all men. The character and quality of all men, no article there, so it's not all specific men. I mean, some men don't respect what's right in any context, but he's talking about those that respect what's right. So what would most people do? What's the right thing to do in a given situation? I mean, if you saw someone drowning and you can swim, what would be the right thing for you to do? You go by a home that's on fire, someone's trapped inside, what's the right thing for you to do? I mean, what is the right thing for you to do if you come by someone who's been in an accident? What is the right thing to do? In other words, we are to respect what's right. We demonstrate the grace of God. And ladies and gentlemen, it's interesting to me that Paul says, respect what's right in the sight of all men, because that would seem to imply that deep inside the heart and mind of all men, there's a sense of right. Deep inside the person, deep inside the individual, there's a sense that, you know, there's a right and there's a wrong. And Paul said, you demonstrate grace when you live out your lives and you live it out in a right way. Do proper business with people. Display that you're right with the Lord by the business that you do. Have good relationships with others. You be that way. Demonstrate what's right. Then he says, pursue what's peaceful. Verse 18, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Notice again the point, if it's possible, because it isn't always possible. Because we don't ever compromise God's truth 
just to produce a peace at any cost. We're to be peace-loving people, all right, but we are to be peace-loving people as far as it depends on us. This is not a peace-at-any-cost philosophy. We can't compromise the Word of God. We have to stand for truth. If the truth of God is changing us, we can't just give in to that because we want to be at peace with other people. We have to stand for things that God stands for. But in the context of that, we have to try to promote peaceful harmony. If there's to be hostility or warfare, let it come from the other side, not us. From our perspective, we need to try to stay out of fights and try to stay out of wars with people. We need to just kind of quietly live our lives fearing the Lord and for the glory of God. We demonstrate the grace of God when we do that. Now, there's never going to be total peace between us and unbelievers. That's a theological impossibility. Jesus even brought that point out. He said, I didn't come here the first time to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. And then he laid out the details. People who believe in me sometimes will be at odds with people in their own family. Christ said, I didn't come to bring world peace the first time. He will the second time when he returns. He will bring about world peace. But sometimes a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of God means war within families. What Paul is saying here is that we should try to do our best to be at peace with the character and quality of all kinds of people, demonstrating the grace of God. We're not called, by the way, to stamp out sin in this world. That's not our job. The Lord Jesus Christ will take care of that in his time, and he'll do it the right way. We're called to deal with stuff in our own lives. We're called to allow the word of God and the grace of God to so permeate us that we actually become a display of the marvelous grace of God. And when Jesus was here the first time, one of the things that the Jews didn't like about him is that he didn't lead some major revolutionary war and topple Rome. That's what they wanted him to do. They wanted him to topple Rome, and he said, I am your king, and I can give you your kingdom, but you need to repent. You don't have the righteousness necessary to get into the kingdom. They didn't like that. They just wanted him to come and take over things, which he ultimately is going to do. But when he came to offer them personal forgiveness of sins so they could have a relationship with God, they wanted him gone. There are those in Christianity who think it is their job to lead some political revolution to take over the world. I don't see that in the scriptures anywhere. Our responsibility is to be at peace as much as possible with all kinds of men, not trying to dominate them. And people think the way they think. We're trying to get along with those people the best that we can. That's demonstrating grace. A fourth grace action is leave vengeance to God. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, most people don't realize vengeance payback is actually a ministry of God. They don't get this, which is why most people don't understand the concept of hell, because they don't understand this is part of what God is going to do. And the fact of the matter is, for the most part, if you're people like us and you believe in the Word of God and you take it seriously and you stand for the things that the Bible says that we should stand for, we get branded as a bunch of right-wing conservative fanatics who are homophobic, we are pro-life, we are Second Amendment right fanatics. That's the way we're branded. What do we do with that? 
some of that is true. I mean, I guess you could say it's some of it true. We're not fanatics. What do we do when the media is just making us out to be a bunch of goofs who don't have a brain in our head? I mean, we're not the moderate people. We're not the thinking people. What do we do? Leave it to God. Leave vengeance to God. You don't have to do anything. Our responsibility is just to stay committed to the things of the Lord. Because I'll tell you what, you leave vengeance to God, he's got some power to pour it out. Look at what happened to the Egyptians in the Red Sea. They were going to go after God's people. God said, all right, I'll lead you right into the middle of the sea. And they drowned. God has displayed many times the fact that he's perfectly capable of pouring out vengeance. And so grace is displayed when we let God pay it back. And God said, I will pay it back. I do have a wrath side. And you need to understand this. You wrong me. I will pay back with my vengeance. Even Moses said, to me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. I'm paraphrasing Donald Barnhouse on this point, but he basically said that he so truly believed this promise that when someone wronged him, he said, I just shut my mouth and sit back and watch what God will do to them. He said it was amazing. What I saw God do to some people who had wronged me. He said, I just left it all to him. Let him track it down. Never take vengeance yourself. We don't have the right to take law into our own hands. That's the point. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said there was a man on his board at a church that did him great harm. He said at first he wanted to clobber the guy and he thought about doing that, but then he said this verse really stuck him in the heart. And he said, Lord, I'd like to hit back, and I can, but I don't think I will. I'm going to turn him over to you and expect you to handle him. That's what McGee said he prayed. A while after he prayed that, Dr. McGee said he ran into the man, and here's what he wrote. I'm reading what he described. I have never looked at a person who is as unhappy as that man is. He has troubles, friend. The Lord is taking him to the woodshed and whopped him within an inch of his life. When I look into that man's face, I couldn't help but feel sorry for him. In other words, what Dr. McGee did is, I'm going to leave it to God. And you know, Peter said the Lord did that. Just hold your finger here a minute. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 2, if you would, for just a second. Let me show you an interesting text of Scripture where even the Lord Jesus Christ did that. As the second member of the Trinity, 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to have you note verse 23 in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. This is describing Christ who knew no sin. He's hanging on the cross. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, while hanging on a cross, just said, I'm going to turn this whole vengeance thing over to the Lord and let my father pay him back. Which brings us to the fifth action, meet the needs of an enemy. Verse 20 says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals in his head. Hey, who's your enemy? You know... It'll often turn out to be somebody that's related to you or been close to you. I mean, if you want to get down to the nuts and bolts of this, who's your enemy? 
It'll be someone that knows you real well. I've never had an enemy in China. Not that I know of. I've never had an enemy in the Arab world that I know of. I've never had an enemy in Cuba. Well, I've had him in the church. I could tell stories. I've seen it in families where one family member was just brutal to another family member. That's who likely will be your enemy. When you face that enemy, Paul says, if they have a need, they need a drink, they need something to eat, give it to them. If you can meet the need, give it to them. And that will heap burning coals on their head. It may mean God will use this gracious act to intensify the justice of his revenge. In other words, God says, I will actually put more judgment on that person because they wronged you and said things horrible about you. I'll put more judgment on them than they would have ever imagined. Could mean that. It also could mean by doing this, you will diffuse the hostility that exists with the enemy. In other words, as James said, a soft answer turns away wrath. Well, a soft action also may turn away wrath. But it also may mean that God will use that very act to bring that person under conviction. I've wronged the wrong person here. I've done wrong against the wrong person, and he will use your action of kindness in a context of their need to bring them into a right relationship with God. Regardless of what that means, the fact of the matter is, when we do this kind of thing, it does make a difference in what God's going to do. Because what we do when we actually give an enemy something to eat or an enemy something to drink or we help them, we are demonstrating the grace of God. Which brings us to the sixth action. Be overcome with good, not evil. Verse 21 wraps it up. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You have two options here. You can be overcome by evil, or you can be overcome by good. It's interesting that the verb overcome, the first verb is passive, the second is active, and what I would understand that to mean is, if you don't take action, if you don't take specific action to overcome evil, it's going to overcome you. In other words, evil is floating around all over the place trying to overcome people. I mean, Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Evil wants to overtake you. And if you don't take specific action to get on top of that, it will overtake you. So what God says is in situations when you find yourself in conflict, in situations when you find yourself in situations in which your emotions are surging and you're becoming emotional and irrational, don't allow your emotions to overtake what's right and overtake your mind. Don't let evil overtake you. You overcome evil with good and leave the vengeance to God. God said, you do that in the world you're living and you reflect my grace. Now God has a record of every sin every single one of us have ever committed at any time. 
Oh, you may think, oh, that was a long time ago. Nobody saw it. Oh, God did. He has a record of any sin ever committed by anyone at any time. And time is not going to eliminate the guilt. Delay in judgment will not eliminate the guilt. There's only one person that can do that. And that's Jesus Christ. He is the only person who is the grace of God who can take away all of our guilt and give us a relationship with the Lord, which is why we have a communion service, to remember that. So regardless of what your sin is, regardless of what your past is, regardless of how overcome with evil you've been, you invite him into your life to save you. Because just as Paul said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. May we pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior right now in this moment, you can do that by praying something like this, God, I'm a sinner. And I admit it, and I ask the Lord Jesus Christ to come in and take over my life. Our Father, it's a tough world we live in. We admit we're not perfect at this. We have work to do. Thank you for your patience that gives us time to make adjustments in life and move forward. I pray this text will affect us in the way the Holy Spirit wants to, so that we'll become a family of believers that pleases you. Bless our communion service, Lord, to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.